Hi everyone and welcome to today's episode. I have with me today Aisha Delanimal. Aisha founded the Conversation Agency, which empowers people of all ages through creative, dynamic and collaborative conversation. She designs and facilitates conversations that help us to slow down and allow room for curiosity about different and diverse perspectives. As a practical philosopher, she's interested in the potential of philosophical conversation to transform relationships both to ideas and towards each other, especially in moments of uncertainty, confusion and even conflict, which feels absolutely vital right now. Aisha works as a consultant, an educator, a facilitator, mostly in arts and culture settings, uh, for example, galleries, schools, and within community projects. And this is such a brilliant, in my view, conversation. Uh, We go off in all sorts of directions. We allowed space for that to happen. And there was so much that we could have talked about I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope something resonates for you. If you do want to connect with Aisha, she shares her details at the end and I put everything in the show notes for you as well. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello, Aisha. Welcome to Do Good and Do Well, my podcast. We're back. How are you today? Hi, Sarah. I'm really good, actually. I'm really excited. All good. Of a sudden, <laughs> my nerves have yeah. turned to excitement. Yeah, we were just saying, weren't we, that we were a bit nervous about doing this. But yeah, it's good. It's a conversation. Um, okay, so first, first question. Can you start by telling us about yourself? Uh, yes, a little bit. Oh my goodness, there's always so many versions of me, <laughs> I could say, and all of us, of course, but so keeping it simple, um, my name's Aisha Delana Roll. I founded the Conversation Agency some years back, uh, late 90s it was, funnily enough, and it was to create agency to empower people um, through creative and dynamic and collaborative conversation. And I suppose I've spent my time since then finding out just what those words can mean. Yeah. Which is really great because it really changes. And it's interesting to think of what what I thought that meant at the time. And then, should I tell you what I do? Yeah. Yes, please. (laughs) I design. (laughs) And I think this is part of it is rather than just having conversations. I mean, I see them as a powerful tool. And I think that we need to design them to Mm -hmm. really bring out their potential if you're using them for a purpose. And I think that really focuses things at the same time so that you can open it up. So I design and facilitate conversations. And again, the facilitation part is really important to me. You know, the first time I tried this, the kind of core of my practice, because it's facilitated, there's a process, there's a structure. I, I actually didn't know how to get in. <laughs> I didn't know how to join in because I was thinking, this mm-hmm. is weird. You know, I was used to having conversations in pubs, actually. And 
you know, about something very specific in a very specific place or in the shop or whatever. But I've come to see the power of facilitated conversation about really allowing the participants, because I do group conversation, mm. allowing the people in the conversation to really work on the thinking together and not have to worry about certain things. And I'm there to kind of hold the space in various ways and to kind of help move things on. But so those, but I design it, help design, co-design whatever people need before the facilitation and always slowing things down. I think that's a huge part, slow things down. Mm. We think fast. I mean, I think faster than I can write, which is why I've got such messy writing, (laughs) handwriting. So actually slowing things down it can bring you to a full stop sometimes because you're like "Ah, I'm not used to this but gradually you can kind of go up well you realize that you've got some space so I use that metaphor a lot about making space but I actually it feels like space and it is space in the sense there's more space between words often Um, not always sometimes people get very excited and speak quite fast but then between speakers, so sometimes people don't speak at all. Um, because, and then you ask them at the end, and they go, I just went on this incredible journey of thinking around and about. Other people are listening intently to what others are saying. Some people get sparked off by an idea and then go, ooh, and on a journey and, and might report back a little bit at the end. It's a very strange process, I think, having conversations. Mm. So actually creating a a choreographed almost space is allows some different things to happen and for me it allows it to fit into a lot of different settings and I think you know difference and diversity have to be made space for as well which is part of the idea it's philosophical that is my practice it's Mm. about I didn't mention that before and my background is philosophical inquiry so the idea is that you're getting back revealing assumptions and looking at what else is possible and listening to other versions of the world really of how people see things and how they experience things and then sometimes listening to yourself and going oh I wonder if it has to stay like that so I think that's what I do I create a space where people can begin to see things differently maybe change their minds Um, Mm. not necessarily but there's the freedom and what else do I say about what I do? Um, well, I suppose I think the power of conversations is that you can actually transform relationships between people, but also our relationships to ideas, mm. which also means then our opinions. And I think in this time of great sort of... Well, we're so encouraged to have fixed opinions, to fix our opinions. Absolutely, yeah. And we so we become so attached to them. Mm-hmm. They become part of our ideas our sense of identity you know so I think in a in a space I mean there's lots of different ways people do it but in the way the kind of core of what I do it is somewhere that you could put down some of those opinions mm. take them off because um in my practice part of the safeness of the space is that we are not our opinions our value isn't in our opinions mm. which is a it's quite a strange leap or you know that that's a strange thing to hold actually and um, because 
I don't think that's how we ex- are encouraged to be. Yeah. You know, you're bad if you've got that opinion and you're good if you've got that one. So if in this space, at least for the hour and a half or whatever that we're doing it, you can take off opinions and actually maybe experiment, it kind of gives you some space to listen mm. in a different way because you're not in a position to defend defend or attack, actually. Because in, in the training that I, I did, part of it is that you have to agree or disagree. And um, you start off with a question and then you agree or disagree. And people often feel uncomfortable about disagreeing and uncomfortable about making statements because it seems like we believe something and we haven't mm. thought it through or whatever. It's like it's also giving something away and it can feel exposing. So that often is my role as well as to kind of encourage how someone can make a question into a statement or, or vice versa sometimes. And just so we get a bit more agile with our thinking mm. and that we can actually live think, which mm. sounds odd because you think, we, of course, when we're thinking, it's live thinking, but it's so often prepared beforehand. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. As I don't think I've made the connection. You and I have had many conversations. I don't think I'd made the connection <laughs> between coaching and what you do. Like what all those things you were just saying felt so familiar and in coaching we we would maybe call it fresh thinking that there is fresh thinking that comes in that space and as I'm hearing you speak and the skill required to hold those spaces and to allow because it, it, like, I suppose like coach, you know, a coachee coming to a session, if you haven't done it before, it can feel really alien and strange. And as you say, we've got this, you know, this sort of way that we've grown up, these systems and structures that tell us that we should be this or that. And we should have, you know, I, I do think it's great if we have a point of view, because then you've got somewhere to start. But yeah, that skill that you're in the way that you're holding that space. I'm really curious about how you came to this. Like what, so you started in the, did you say the late nineties? Like what were the? Yeah, I, well, I did a philosophy degree, bachelor's many years ago and um, loved some of it and not other bits and was frustrated that it didn't, kind of translate to all, to everyday life. Um, most people didn't seem that interested in that, mm. whereas that was what I was interested in, how we think, how we, you know, really how it affects how we operate in our lives and, and then what the decisions we make. But a lot of people just saw it as a kind of academic exercise and you've, you pass your exams. and But also I, I find exams very hard. So the whole thing was actually... Not a pleasant experience for me, apart from the social side I loved. <laughs> but I found that, that philosophy wasn't what I was expecting. And then thought, I'm never going to do anything academic again. I really find exams difficult. hate being tested in that way. I'm out of it. And then 10 years later, I saw a programme on television called The Transformers. It was a series called The Transformers. And one of them was called Socrates for Six-Year-Olds. And Dr. Catherine McCall, who I eventually trained with, was facilitating a philosophical inquiry with some six-year-olds. 
and um, they were talking about what it, you know, how do you know if, if if there was a really fantastic robot made, how would you know? And it looked exactly like a human. It was sitting here with us. How would you know it wasn't a robot? Or it was a robot. Yeah, yeah. And they were, I mean, it was quite mind-blowing. And then I saw another person facilitating a conversation in a, I think it was a Washington kind of, what had been a real sink school, secondary school, mostly kids of colour. And it had been a war zone, you know, and they had a metal detector to go in. And mm. the head teacher had taken it on and was turning it around. And part of that was to bring in practical philosophy, which I hadn't heard that term, term before. Mm. Yeah, can you and, say what that is? Well, I think it was about, you know, applying philosophical thinking to everyday life, to mm. our lives, making it part of our lives, or making the awareness that we're philosophizing part of our lives. Because the, the thing is... And actually the practice, I mean, I think in the history of philosophy from ancient Greece, I mean, that I think it was about your lived life. That's Socrates, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. It was very much about this is, this thinking is important and you do it in the marketplace mm. and engage people and prod them and annoy them. And um, he had a particular process that, I, I don't go out to prod and annoy people, but I definitely, you know, the, seeing the, the the place that inquiry has in our lives, but not in an academic way. I think that's what practical philosophy is. So I was watching this guy doing a session with these kids in a school and they were rocking on their chair legs and just like so disinterested. And gradually they realised that he was creating a space where they could speak and he saw it dawn on them and then they were talking about justice and he was helping them see that it hadn't all been decided and what if they were in the conversation and they were in it now and he wasn't telling them what to think, telling them how it is and they just, I mean, they became animated and it was really powerful moment. I literally held my breath actually mm. and I realised that's inspiration that is. That's inspiration because I, I breathed in and I didn't breathe out for a while. <laughs> and I was inspired and I, I looked into training and it was in Glasgow. It, it took me about three years to get there in the end, but I did an, a master's in the, an MPhil in something called Community of Philosophical Inquiry, which was some academic philosophy, but in the aim of training to facilitate anyone from the age four upwards mm. in thinking about thinking and um you know and I think it was the first time that I actually I mean I, I mentioned before when I first got to the, college, the university most people had been doing it for a while and I just couldn't get in it was like this kind of roundabout that was going quite fast and I couldn't jump on because yeah. you had to frame what you said I agree or I disagree and I was like whoa I was really unable to get on it took me about three times I mean, that's because they already were very familiar with it. I often do one-off sessions with people and it's not like that, you know. Yeah. And there's lots of help for getting in. But once I got in, I realised it was the first time I'd begun to enjoy thinking in, in, my, in my life. And I did thinking lessons at primary school and it put me off thinking forever. I thought I couldn't think. Thinking I came out of my thinking lessons thinking that I couldn't <laughs> 
think. Which is what a logical lessons. I've never heard of Well, I some of my friends I do have a few friends from my primary school still and they actually remember some of them. I don't remember. I think some of it was Edward de Bono, which is all about these different kind of thinking different colour thinking caps you can put on and it would bring you into a different um, frame of thinking in a, in a process. I really don't remember. I just remember I found it very, I didn't really, really hated it. Mm. And my conclusion from thinking lessons was Aisha can't think. Yeah. Now that is a logical fallacy because I was, a, you know, I was thinking that I couldn't think, but I didn't know that it's only when I started doing philosophy that I realized, <laughs> hang on, that doesn't make any sense. I wasn't yeah. thinking. <laughs> So really simple things that's which are really useful to realize hang on that doesn't doesn't work there's a contradiction there bring some curiosity to it yeah and then think it through live thinking fresh thinking and then you end up like going oh it's okay i can think yeah <laughs> something that might yeah. seem obvious. and i like it yeah and <laughs> I, I like thinking I, yeah it took me many years but i actually grew to really love it yeah tell us more about because I think when we first crossed paths you were doing a project at Turner Contemporary with children and young people and I know that that's part of your work is about you know how can we create these spaces where young people feel part of the conversation like properly part of the conversation can you talk a little bit more about that yeah, it was, um, that was a, a wonderful period. I was the philosopher in residence. It kind of came about as opposed to from the beginning, I am the philosopher in residence. It started <laughs> off with me sending a proposal before they actually opened to Karen Esley, who was the learning manager at the time, and to Michelle Gregson. Yeah, I, I said, I could train your, your guides in the gallery mm. with a philosophical approach. And they said, oh, yes, please. Um, We did a taster session with some teachers and just to see whether people actually felt it was an accessible process. And and it was a 10-year residency it became. It was really great. So I kind of got involved in the learning, development of their learning approach and Mm. the conversations that front of house have with their visitors. So visitor engagement it was really and some public engagement projects as well with Trish Scott that was really was really various wonderful working with artists and Mm. I think that was what I mean I think I knew from the beginning that was where where I wanted to go through a path that involved art Mm. which is why I wrote that proposal to the gallery obviously but um I you know seeing that connection between artworks and artists artists who philosophize they turn things around and up and down and Mm. often confuse us Um, they're very rarely didactic this is what you must think they're really provocateurs in all Mm. sorts of ways I mean that's contemporary artists some people don't like that I think it's well I enjoy it and I and that was a lot of the the focus of the work that I did with the gallery was around encouraging young people Mm. to think, finding Mm. ways to think, enjoying hearing each other think and really learning to listen and not assuming it. I've got it right. Don't want to listen to you. So away from the debate, Mm. which has definitely got its place, but in a group, it was very much about, okay, 
seeing sides and getting more agile and it ran for five years the youth navigators program which was really wonderful and they worked with me and an artist and the learning team so we kind of moved from making activities to thinking activities well to you know separating them and joining them because you can't really separate either of them obviously but um yeah kind of letting them realize I can go this way I can go that way and then I can mm. connect them and and then we with the youth navigators we got them to practice they used to come for four days over a couple of months or a month and um the ultimate goal was they would go and approach a visitor a stranger and have a conversation with a stranger around the artwork and that was really mm. great seeing them grow in confidence they were like no I'm not gonna do that <laughs> yeah. but we kind of did quite a lot of peer stuff with them and so the more confident ones would kind of you know then they all wanted to do it, it was really interesting watching the mm. dynamics of like oh they're doing it I'm gonna give it a go and you know you saw them grow taller literally mm. stand taller just the experience of talking to adults who were listening and it was yeah really exciting and which then was great Karen Esley in the gallery went okay what next for for young people and they asked the question what if young people started to actually impact on their local environment so they started developing child-led programs which I mm. worked on as well mm. are inspiring change and pioneering places so pioneering places has ended up with uh Conrad Shawcross. Yes, in Ramsgate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. So that was Art Inspiring Change was the pilot and the kids made wonderful temporary mm. installations, which was, mm. and they were just, I mean, wow, the, the life the, um, and the ambition that they were full of. And because they'd been, there was four groups working with four different artists. It was very exciting. And then, yeah, so then, I don't know, two groups? in Ramsgate working to then result in this public art piece mm. from which I've only seen online actually I haven't seen it in person yet it's come come visit yeah, so, oh, come, yeah, come back Ramsgate. to Kent yeah 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 come back what is the if you think about your desire for change or you know the thing that you want to impact on if you had kind of a magic wand and you could change something for people, what what would that thing be? Um, I mean, I know what I kind of like to get moving. Mm. And then I think it's hard to, I mean, a lot of people can see that there's a lot of change that each of us needs, even in our everyday life, whether it's about the energy we're using or the kind of energy we're using. You know, how do we make these things possible? Because people want to make things possible mm. we need to be kind of supported in that in different ways and of course there are pockets of support but I think there's a big picture I mean I get a lot of inspiration from finding out like webinars and podcasts about the things that are going on I find that keeps me buoyant in a mm. way that I often see people feeling quite depressed because mm. the news is depressing and yeah. so knowing the pockets but actually I'm I feel now I really want to be part of connecting things up so mm. um personally I would like to uh, so a young boy in a primary school in Lewisham said to me uh, it was a really interesting project and these kids are like 
so articulate and very familiar, which is painful really, um, but with with discrimination of all kinds. And um, they're working hard on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. They know that the government isn't doing what it should, Mm -hmm. but it's promised. Mm -hmm. So they are really quite desperate. And one of these boys said to me, he must have been 10, maybe 11, just said to me, they're not listening. What can we do? How can we make them listen? And then he said, we have to stop being so kind. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's so I'd already been thinking over the pandemic about how do I increase well, focus my where I want to make an impact. I think that um, continuing to go into organisations is what I'd like. But Mm -hmm. and then also separately working with young people. Um, There's some great programmes. I love that one that Asma Shah mentioned. Mm-hmm. on your your podcast and mm-hmm. also like advocacy academy all these amazing self-directed a lot of it um yeah. stuff going on with young people and I'm living in Wales at the moment there's some incredible groups of young people doing things so I would like to I mean I'm looking into it at the moment I'm contacting people who work with young people talking to some young people and I need to do more of that mm-hmm. um, about what do you need yeah. what, how what can I do to help you I'm imagining what I imagine I can do is share some of the kind of philosophical inquiry tools and the ways of opening up dialogue. Mm. But there's a lot of stuff around the body as well that young people need Mm. to sort of resource them and protect them, nourish, nurture. But I also would like to be, you know, being able to, you know, work some of the organisations I work with say, look, right, okay, now... How about we have a, a conversation with some young people, you and them, and then gradually those young people get to host those conversations. So I kind of do myself out of a job. Yeah. But actually partnering up generations, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Also communities. So people who are leaders currently, actually then talking directly to you. I'd like to be part of putting those people together. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, the skill that you have in doing that, it's not just about having people in the same room, is it? It's not, you know, the intention that's put two groups of people in the room and hope that they get something out of it. You know, it, it is about that it's contracting with each other. It's about saying, this is how we're going to be in this space together. These are the kind of, this isn't like, but like the rules, rules of engagement, you know, how we're going to work and what we want to get out of it. And that is a real skill to be able to be in that space and and do yes. that well and I think there's I mean I saw the the rebellion film the extinction rebellion film the other day and I thought it was really interesting because I mean you know it's a complex picture the whole thing but some of the young people had kind of split off and they said we're into dialogue and they set up a dialogue space in a park mm. somewhere in London and um, they were thrown out um, eventually but that's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to do direct action anymore. They wanted to be having dialogue. So there's clearly an appetite to be doing it and people are finding their ways. And I know that there are some really key things that I think, you know, when I do my dialogue sessions, people go, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And it's like suddenly freeze people up. There's some really small operations. They're kind of profound, mm-hmm. but they allow some different things to happen. And I think... You know, we all need to be collaborating in how can we 
I, I said when I the other day when I was talking to someone, I said, tool young people up. I didn't quite mean it. <laughs> <laughs> but I met, you know, these are tools, but they're, yeah. people need them. We all need them. Yeah. We all need them around the dinner table, in our working lives, but also in our home relationships everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's what I want. That's the impact. So I'm just trying to do the research before kind of mm. making some new partnerships with people, really. Mm. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk because I think they are really small things and they seem so obvious, I think, as well. I was just thinking about active listening, that we would, you know, if I'm going into an organisation talking about how you have a more coaching approach in the workplace, we might talk about what it is to actively listen. And it seems so obvious. It's like, well, obviously... We all know how to listen, you know, <laughs> but yeah. it is, it's going back to some of those basics and understanding what is, what we're we trying to get out of this. What is the outcome of really properly listening, you know, with your heart and your ears and, and really helping people to feel seen and listened to and heard and respected. And, you know, it is having to be quite specific about that. And yeah. give people the tools to enable that to happen. And I think these are practices, you know, they're all practices. I think that it's an interesting work. It's used in so many fields. Um, but I think it, you know, to listen without preparing what you're going to say while you're listening or not listening. <laughs> yeah, is, yeah. Really, it's a skill. And, and actually, but you, and you can't do it all the time. No. not It's not for all the time. But I think that, so philosophy is about uncertainty. It's about bringing curiosity to uncertainty. Now, uncertainty is an uncomfortable feeling. And it was only when I went to study my MPhil that I put these things together and went, oh, so a lot of my confusion that I felt a lot of the time was about around that uncertainty. But actually, that was a really valuable starting point for exploring mm. and listening mm. rather than going, I've got the, you know, you actually need to listen to me. I'm going to yeah. tell you how it is. Yeah. Yeah. How would things be different if you had been certain, you know, what would your life look like yeah. if you'd well, gone yeah. into that space certain? Well, I think I had a little vision of that when I was young and that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I lost yeah. my certainty. I think I did have some very briefly. Mm. and I lost it and it's it's very uncomfortable and you know I can look back now and given all the different discourses around identity and race etc that and I'm mixed heritage which I, I it's not that I ignored it but I did ignore it as my set in terms of myself um for a long time but I mean I grew up with my mum was a white South African and she was campaigning with anti-apartheid years because she mm. was a was banned for 30 years and my dad was Sri Lankan so she couldn't have gone back with me because I'm the wrong color for South Africa anyway even she hadn't been unbanned at the time apartheid that wasn't you know it wasn't what you did if you had a, a mixed relationship in South Africa in terms of color you could be in prison for seven years that mm. was what it was in, in apartheid it was brutal and crazy but so I grew up around all this knowing about inequity and the cruelty and the and the effects of colonization and the power imbalances but I didn't actually think about my 
belonging, really. I think I've felt it. And that's one thing, actually. Um, I think that's what, over the pandemic, I've come back to the body in mm-hmm. a way that I had had split, especially with philosophy, people think of head, don't they? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and medicine, actually, people think head, mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been really undoing that and reading other things and looking at, of course, indigenous cultures where they had had much more of a kind of holistic sense. You know, all the singing that people do, which is such so good for your vagus nerve and trauma, mm-hmm. you know, literally mm-hmm. all the singing and dancing that people do in places where they've been highly traumatised over hundreds of years. But, you know, these are survival, survival roots. Yeah, so with me, it's been around breathing and beginning to realise the conversation isn't just between different heads and minds. Actually, mm. the mind is in the body and we need to include the body. Mm. So that's something that, and I'm, you know, in terms of young people, as I was saying, I'm not, it's an awareness I have and a respect for that work, but I don't feel equipped to really kind of pass that on. Mm. So that's why I was thinking, you know, like, a collaborative team of people who are all learning together, not just handing things on, but learning together and really sharing some very, what we've found is powerful and really building some change because it needs to happen. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, this, this is a question I ask every guest on the podcast, but I suppose it, what you're talking about connecting to the, connecting to the body and thinking about your experiences, thinking about, where you want to be heading what you want to be helping when when you hear that phrase do good and do well then what what does that mean for you um well you know <laughs> coming from a philosophical <laughs> thing I go oh what's good you know <laughs> yes yeah exactly is that it's just twinned always with bad mm-hmm. and so what's been interesting in my work is because you know there's been lots of conversations about what is safe there's yeah. nothing safe. So then it's like, okay, there's risks. How do we take risks? But also about safe enough. I found out Donald Winnicott, I think he was a psychoanalyst, used that term to sort of open up being a good parent without being the perfect parent. So oh, yeah. Yeah. really giving some play in these ideas rather than, oh, my God, I've got to get things down this line and where's the point that I'm meant to be and I've had just gone off it, fallen off it, because it's a knife edge. Or, so it's that, yeah, good enough. So yeah. I think I, I kind of like that, bring it out. And I just think that the do good, do well, I think the well bit is, as I said, the kind of come over the pandemic, much more like, hang on, Aisha, let's get <laughs> get this sort of in the picture. Mm. Um, not get this bit sorted, I nearly said that. Get <laughs> it <laughs> done. <laughs> Fix it. Yeah. yeah. Well, also that those words, fixing things, and Mm -hmm. so a lot of um, sensing and uh, bringing the inquiry to the body actually is Mm. what part of Mm. doing well is become for me. And also listening in a way that it's like, well, you know, how do I need to adapt to things? I think that's part of the do good, do well. I, I find it very hard to to encapsulate that but I am I'm already in you know I think that since I did my master's training I've been in the right stream for me yeah you know with an intention to really make people help people feel supported enough to take risks with how they think 
and that can go for any setting, you know, and it can be powerful in any setting. I do think we need um, some serious shifts in how we operate, economy-wise as well. But I think, you know, we we kind of, there's so many assumptions we make when people are acting so fast and needing to work so fast, so many expectations on people that would just, that people just kind of keep in the same loops without having the time to sit back and go, is this how it has to be? And actually this point of uncertainty at the moment, and that word is everywhere. It's a real opportunity mm. for big mm. business as well as, you know, grassroots, all of us young people to get into the picture. Put, and, you know, that's what we used to do in the, in the galleries, put ourselves in the picture. Mm. Um, and I actually think I used to edit myself out a lot funnily enough. So I'm, the body's bringing me back into the picture, my body. I'm really interesting, interested in, there was a beautiful quote from Einstein, actually, that I wrote in one of my kind of follow-ups to something, which is, it's an illusion that we're separate. Now, there's so many people who will say this, and so many traditions and cultures, and I think it's really helpful to see it in different places in Ubuntu mm. Archbishop Tutu's granddaughter wrote a book about everyday Ubuntu and that is about you are a person through other persons so you are connected and you cannot be an individual operate so I think the more I do good and do well is is what I'm finding out is try and apply that mm. and try and apply it to how I think yeah yeah and I think what I've noticed some of the things you've said then about you know I think I edited myself out and you know and I needed to adapt and you know talking about this people are in a loop and we're going round and round and round and round and actually we need that thing going back to what you said at the beginning like how do we slow down how do we stop how do we recognize that actually maybe we're not the ones you're not the one that needs to adapt maybe the the structures and the systems need to be adapting and taking that time out to think about how can we do things differently how can we reinvent or re-establish create new ways of thinking new ways of bringing people together I just so often see particularly the people that I'm working with that sense of I need to adapt and twist and shape and contort myself so that I fit into and I think particularly for free like I'm thinking about freelancers specifically as well because we're we're out of those organizations which is an it can be a real advantage but I think it can be harder then to find your way in like that roundabout you talked about <laughs> yeah, yeah. earlier and and then you're let kind of on. having to twist let me change. on or let me off yeah let me <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, other people go, let me off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or you get on straight away and then you're like, oh, no, this is yeah. what I want. Now get me off. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yes, exactly. Well, I thought, I mean, you know, a lot of um a lot of talking cures are about how do I change myself to fit in. And I think uh, that literally, I mean, I agree. I I was suffering from that for a long time. And it was a, you know, it's a it's a model, but it's also keeps a status quo. I mean, I remember Oliver James, a psycho psychologist um, back in the 80s, saying, you know, the reason that lots of these really high-powered yuppies, it was at the time, are so in crisis is not because they're failing. It's because this system is failing us as humans. 
I mean, and obviously people have been saying things for many years, but I just remember him saying that on the news in the mainstream. And I'm very interested in how do we get some of the really interesting, challenging to the status quo ideas more into the mainstream? It's partly through scientists, mm. you know, the idea, because in neuroscience now, there's it's ex- much more accepted that knowledge is not all cognitive. It's also in the body. Mm-hmm. And that the actual the systems of thought and emotion are and feeling are entangled, and these models mm-hmm. of separation that we have that can become responsible for some terrible things in the world just don't stand up, and that's through science. That's very useful, and also yeah. the idea of what's possible. So I think in conversations as well, when people shut it down, go, oh no, well that's not possible. It's like, what if it was? You know, actually opening up. What do we know isn't possible? What, and, you know, it's bring the uncertainty to all the things that we think we know. Um, I mean, and scientists are some of the m- most uncertain people, actually, interestingly, and highly creative, really inspiring. But if we don't get that shared with us, that's not the narrative for the public. So I think, you know, there's a real... So when you were just talking, I was thinking, yeah, you know, the a really exciting thing is the thinking seven generations ahead because there's this Roman Krishnarit, I struck <laughs> with his name, sorry, sorry, Roman, public philosopher. He talks, he's got a book called The Good Ancestor, and he's drawing on lots of indigenous cultures yeah. where everything was about seven generations ahead, otherwise it didn't have meaning. And mm. it's like, wow, you know, you suddenly go, okay, what are we going to make I mean, literally make from what we're going to, you know, how every all the waste that we make from what are we going to eat? What are we going to, how are we going to create this space? Because at the moment, someone, I heard him on one of his podcasts and I, I can't remember who it was, but this guy said, we need to decolonize the future. And some people go, well, what do you mean? There's no one there. But it, there is. That, that, that's yeah. the point. We need to think about people in who are there in the future. And I think those are some of the conversations that would be really interesting with young people Mm. hosting with leaders at the moment. I'd like to be part of Yeah. Yeah, I think that sounds, just sounds really important. (laughs) I don't know that's such a rubbish word, but I just... Yeah. And exciting. And exciting. Oh my God, everyone could get excited about that. Yeah. Well, I think also... It's hard, isn't it? Because on the one hand, so my kind of philosophy is that we have, I agree, we have to, we have to be thinking about what our impact is, you know, in the world right now. And I love that idea of thinking, what will our impact be in seven generations? And also recognising what's in our control and what's not within our control. And I think sometimes the the weight of that kind of idea can keep people stuck Mm. because you know we can't necessarily see how our imaginations can perhaps see it but then our rational brain starts to go yeah but how exactly are you gonna do that how how are you you little little you gonna kind of you know make that difference and so 
I think there's something about having these really big ambitions and visions and really thinking about, you know, in this ideal world, if I could, if I did have a magic wand, what would this world look like? That's the world that I'm aiming towards. And I can't do it in a day and I can't necessarily do that by myself, but I can take these actions every day in the way that I think, maybe the way I behave, the people that I surround myself with, the blogs that I write, the tweets that I send out, you know, what are the things that I can do right now? Well, and you're making me think, you know, actually, I really need to share more often the things I find out about that give me inspiration and keep me going, having hope. Yeah. More, you know, just because actually we all need to know those things because they do give us hope. We do need hope and energy in order to carry on with these visions. We do. And also, you know, all the people that I work with have the, you know, they're they're just so... they come with such positive intention and have this expertise, but are also often very grounded and really curious and want to learn, yet keep their thoughts, opinions to themselves, because why would anyone want to listen to me? What have I got to say? And part of well, you know, part yeah. of this is about this is why I want to do this podcast, because I want different voices on here really being able to say this is what I believe in and this is what I care about and this is what matters to me and these are the things that inspire me and this is how I want you to feel inspired and there's not yes absolutely and I think that part of that is people who've been working in the I'm not sure about all of the freelancers who work with you whether most of them in arts and culture they probably are yeah mostly yeah. yeah because I think that that world my experience of that world is that there's so many, so much that world can bring to mm. the kind of economic world that we see. You know, I mean, there's different economies, aren't there? But the way that this, to make our world more sustainable, to have our creative kind of thinking in industry as well as, I mean, there's, of course, it exists in some places. But I think, you know, there's a lot of businesses who want more collaboration, but they don't know how to do it. And actually, artists have been doing it for years. Yeah. And, um, you know, and thinking about it. And there's lots of really interesting stuff around how people can organize themselves and experiment and take that risk, but then also review and how to make those systems work, how to make decisions without it being a, you know, together, but not taking weeks for a, yeah. to come to consent, you know, about the same thing you know, the kind of death by committee or death by meeting. You know, there's people working on these things and you and building tech actually for them, which Mm. is really interesting. And yeah, we more of us need to be using it. But Mm. so yeah, I think you've just given me I'm just going to share more of the things I find on uh (laughs) I mean I do by word of mouth, but actually that's not the biggest yeah, yeah. effective thing, is it? No. It's so fascinating talking to you. And and I know I say this on every episode, but I feel like these episodes could be about four hours long and I have to like <laughs> I have to stop them at some point. What I was gonna say then, so if you're gonna be sharing more of this amazing inspiration and your thoughts on things, where can people find you? How do they find out more about you, how they can work with you, how they connect with you? Well, I think probably LinkedIn is mm-hmm. my would be the first port of call. I've also got a website, theconversationagency.co.uk, 
I'd say those. An email, which is Aisha at theconversationagency.co.uk. Aisha is A-Y-I-S-H-A. Yeah, I'd love to hear from people. I'm really interested in collaborations and what mm. we can each bring to a bigger picture. And, you know, just being explorative, I think. No, and unlikely communities. I like. I had just heard that term from an artist and I thought I, I quite like that, you know. There's a lot of assumptions in what we think of our, as communities and you know moving beyond those assumptions as well so yes mm. I'd be very excited to hear from okay. anyone oh thank you so much I know there was a lot of stuff we haven't even touched upon but I really do urge you all to go and check out Aisha's website and have a look at her connect with her on LinkedIn because she is brilliant thank you very much take very good care bye Thank you, Sarah. I really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Do come and find me. I am pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me mostly on LinkedIn, though. Come find me and connect. And you can sign up to my newsletter if you would like to hear from me. I remind you every week that you matter too. And I share lots of top tips around coaching and how to support yourself as a change maker. So you can find the link to that in the show notes. I will see you next time. Have a really great day.